Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He's on his way. A one-time nightclub bouncer in his native Buenos Aires, Jorge Mario Bergoglio from Argentina by way of the Vatican in Rome is coming to join the world meeting of families and parade around Dublin in that famous Pope mobile. 100,000 people are expected to line the streets of the capital to see him and half a million are expected to see him say mass in the Phoenix Park. Francis will touch down at Dublin Airport at 10.30am on Saturday, August 25th. He will be greeted by clergy and representatives of the Irish government. It remains to be seen whether he will replicate the famous gesture of Pope John Paul II at the start of his papal visit almost nearly four decades ago by kissing the Irish ground as he gets off the plane. Bookies are offering narrow odds on the chances. This is the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And yes, Ireland is changed utterly since Pope John Paul II came in 1979. And don't I remember it well? I was there. We know we've changed as a country. We have since voted for divorce, equal marriage, abortion, all social issues the church leadership were not happy to see the people of Holy Catholic Ireland supporting. In the intervening years, we've learned more than any of us could ever have thought up in our worst nightmares about the horrific extent of clerical child abuse and the cover-ups and the church's contempt for victims. Last Saturday, in a powerful interview on RTE, our former president, Mary McAleese, was talking about the Pope. And she deftly drew the corrupt global connections together and wound them all the way back to the Vatican, dropping in a potted history of the world meeting of families and calling it a right-wing rally en route. I stopped the car to listen. It was one of those radio moments. In her voice, we heard the cold anger of an accomplished woman, too long patronised and denigrated by the princess of her own beloved church. Remember, they knew her well. She had served on several important Catholic Church delegations, the last in 1996. A year later, she was elected President of Ireland and that same year, Cardinal Desmond Connell saw fit to damn her communion in Christchurch Cathedral as a sham and a deception. On an official visit to the US in 1998, she met the powerful Archbishop of Boston, Cardinal Bernard Law, who told her he was, quote, sorry for Catholic Ireland to have you as president, close quote. Four years later, Law had to resign in disgrace following the Boston Globe's exposure, recounted in the film Spotlight, of his central scandalous role in moving around paedophile priests. And here's the stinger. Following his flight to Rome, he continued to serve on several influential policy-making committees, including the Congregation for Bishops, which recommends appointments to the Pope. Is it surprising that the Curia has been described as the leprosy of the papacy? narcissistic and self-referential. No, that's not some libtard abuse, but the words of Pope Francis himself. Even Mary McAleese, a canon lawyer and former head of state, cannot elicit an acknowledgement of a complaint she made to that body couched in canon law. What lies beneath? That's the question. What lies beneath? We're going to talk about the papal visit today and the church's treatment of women and girls and indeed men and boys. Later on, we'll hear a letter to the Pope from Ashling, the fictional character in Emma McLeisacht and Sarah Breen's brilliant book, Oh My God, What a Complete Ashling, and its follow-up due next month. The importance of being Ashling. But first, with me in the studio are Maeve O'Rourke, Senior Research and Policy Officer at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Also, we have Conal O'Faherty of the Irish Examiner newspaper, who has written extensively about adoption at Bessborough and St. Patrick's Guild, and indeed in what the state knew about Chewham before Catherine Corliss's work. Maeve, I just drove past Houston Station and saw some cars outside waiting for people, flying the papal flag, and I thought that was a nice warm thing for people to be picking up excited families coming from down the country or from the airport. And I just thought, well, you know, what's wrong with this? 
Well, I think um, like everything to do with the church, there are good aspects and there's a lot. Um, there's a lot to do with family and this occasion with the Pope will be no different. Um, and that's true of the church in general. But certainly um, for those of us who are concerned with human rights, um, for me personally, given the work that I've done over the last nine years, it's a very difficult visit. And I think this is quite a stressful time for a lot of people because, of course, the history of the Irish state since 1922 has been one of um, discrimination and enormous abuse against particular uh, groups of people, children and women. It's been very class-based. And both the state and the church have collaborated since the foundation of our state to hide away and to uh, abuse certain um, certain parts of our population. And that's something that this visit is forcing us and should force us to deal with. Yeah, you actually look quite stressed, Maeve, if I may say so. I mean, I, I've heard people say this has been actually, they're a bit more relaxed about it because we got through the referendum. We said a lot of the things we needed to say during that time. We found that huge tranche of the population came in behind women. It felt like female emancipation, actually. Um, are, are you still very stressed or do you feel there are many, many areas that are still to be sorted? I think what is worrying me most is that we'll have a simplistic discussion. I'm worried as well that... Um, will place all of the focus on the Pope and the Vatican uh, without also considering what we as a state need to answer for and how we as the Irish people need to behave now in the next hundred years of our country. There is so much um, that needs to change in relation to the church. Absolutely, the Vatican needs to clean up its act. It needs to ensure accountability. It needs to tell the truth. It needs to ensure child protection in the future and it needs to provide proper redress to victims. Also, though, the Irish state is nowhere near beginning to properly deal with the huge um, range of abuses that happened. I mean, in 1951, 1%, more than 1% of the Irish population was incarcerated. And only a tiny proportion of that was in prison. We have to start dealing properly with our whole history of institutional abuse. Um, the industrial schools, the reformatory schools, the Magdalen laundries, the mother and baby homes, the county homes, the maternity hospitals, all of the private agencies that were involved in adoption, the psychiatric institutions, the process of symphysiotomy, the list goes on. And at present, the way that we've dealt with it is that the state and the church have tried to keep control They've basically tried to pay people to then stay silent. There is no access to information. There is no form of accountability. And we have a long way to go. So I suppose I'm just concerned that we would use this opportunity to its maximum effect. For example, um, I think a good example of what I'm talking about is that on Sunday at 3pm, there will be the Stand for Truth gathering at the Garden of Remembrance. And I think it's a wonderful initiative where people who've mm. been harmed by church and state will gather together. We'll get together. to that later when we're talking about, about how, yeah. how we're going to deal with that in the next few days. Oh, great. I was just going to say it's going to end at Sean McDermott Street, which shows the state needs to mm. provide a place of commemoration. Connell, you have been labouring in these fields for many years and sticking with it and getting to the root of abuse and institutional abuse and all of that. Have you any warmth in your heart at all for the Catholic Church at this stage? Um, I, I, I don't really. Um, I, I mean, look, I acknowledge that you know, vast swathes of the population, their faith is extremely important to them. The Pope is you know, a symbol of that faith. Um, I understand all that. Um, I think if the referendum taught me anything, it was that there are, there are essentially two Irelands and I probably write for one of them. I don't write for the other. The other reads my work on adoption or on the laundries and all that, and they don't connect the Catholic Church with that in the sense of it doesn't impact what how they view the church or how they view the Pope or how they view this visit. And I suppose that's what I take from it more than anything else, is that you write and you write and you write, very little changes. Um, I think Maeve's point on the state's role in all this is important, is we can't airbrush that the state and the church worked hand in hand in a lot of this. Um, the church was providing a social service the state wasn't willing to provide um, at a substantially reduced financial rate. And when it comes back to it, it all comes back to money. Um, 
but I suppose for me, it, it, in, in, in the manner of speaking, it doesn't impact my life. I, I, I have very little interest in it. I won't be attending it. Um, but like I said, I think it reflects where we are in terms of there are two sides to Ireland at the moment. There are a side that look at this and see it with that it's hypocrisy in all its forms. I mean, it's about the family when the church spent, I mean, decades separating families in Ireland that didn't live up to the social ideal we were trying to you know, propagate. Um, but for large swathes, swathes of the population, they don't see that. They don't get it. They are, or they choose not to see it. Um, so I suppose that's perhaps how I view it. I don't, um, I don't know if I, if I totally agree because I think there's a lot of people in the middle. We saw from the referendum that clearly a lot of the people who say they're Catholic, who say it on the census, who are happy to send their children to Catholic schools, who are happy to participate in rituals, a lot of them voted in favour of changing the constitutional um, provision on abortion. And I think that it is quite clearly the Christian thing to do to acknowledge and to try and right the wrongs of the past. And I do think there are probably a lot of Catholics in the middle ground who struggle a lot with trying to reconcile what they have been brought up in, what kind of commands so much of their sense of community and family with also their desire to like see the right thing done. And I think that the state... Um, is doing a massive disservice to a lot of the Irish people by just refusing to do what people want to be seen done, want to see done. OK, let's ta- let's get down to brass tacks, Maeve. What are we talking about in terms of practical application mm-hmm. of this? What should they be doing right now? Yeah, so the first way that the state needs to give rights back to people who are denied them and give power back to them is to give them information. So at the moment, adopted people in Ireland do not have a right, statutory right in law to their birth certificate or to their early life adoption file, to their family medical histories. The people whose children or whose relatives were disappeared in the adoption system and in the system of institutionalisation don't have a right in Irish law to know what happened to their family members. That is why we see people two years down the road in June still calling for information. What happened to my relative? Is my relative in the ground? I was forced to give my child up either in hospital or in this mother and baby home. I don't know what happened to that child. How can we still be in a situation where people don't even have access to their own information or that of their disappeared family members? Then the public doesn't have access to the information. So every time there's an investigation, it's done in private and the archives become sealed. The McAleese Committee investigated the extent of state involvement with the Magdalene Laundries between 2011 and 2013. It produced a report which showed, quite rightly, there was huge state involvement, but I think was a terrible, um, uh, made terrible conclusions on the conditions in the laundries because it kind of said there wasn't physical abuse, whereas actually... And there was clearly lots of testimony in that report showing what we know to be true, which is that women were arbitrarily detained and girls and forced to work and subjected to all kinds of horrendous um, exploitation and abuse. But the archive of state documents relating to the laundries has been held in secret by the Department of the Taoiseach at the moment and they How refuse they to release that it. Move? So they say in response to a request under the Freedom of Information Act, oh, this department is actually holding the entire McAleese archive um, for safekeeping and not for the purpose of the FOI Act. Uh, and Francis Fitzgerald made a statement in 2017 on the Dole Record saying that um, there are no plans now or in the future to release that archive. Um, and the argument that's often made is that there's sensitive data in it and we all have data protection obligations. Well, what they don't say is that a lot of those documents are to do with the administration of these institutions. And it's possible to redact sensitive data. Is it? They could be separated or, or um, penciled out yeah, or whatever. Yeah, and with the digital uh, technologies mm. that are available, it's very easily done. And it's done in a lot of countries where they're investigating this type of systematic abuse. Yes. Connor, that, that interests me is, is, is how this is handled in other countries, uh, such as the, the, the Tune Mother and Baby Home and the records relating to that. Have you investigated that? I know you've written for the New York Times, for example, or you've been written about in the New York well, Times. Yeah, I haven't written for them. Um, <laughs> oh, you will I'm be available. Someday, I suspect, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I agree with everything what Maeve says. I mean, I mean, the McAleese archive, at its basic, you can't, the state can't put forward the notion that the McAleese report is the official narrative of the Magdalene Audrey's in Ireland if no one can critique it, if no one can look at the records that he based all of his assertions on. 
I mean, at any basic academic level, you have to be able to critique something and you have to access the same records. Um, I think it's a fig leaf to say that this is about data protection. I mean, we all get FOIs where names of individuals are redacted. I mean, it is absolutely 100% possible to do that. Um, what do you think it's about then? If I, it's not about if it's not about protecting data and that sort I of mean, thing, I, what I is think it about? It's, it's about kicking the can down the road and I think it's about secrecy. I mean, we shouldn't be investigating Magdalene Laundries in isolation from mother and baby homes, in isolation from adoption societies. It's all one story. It's all about the treatment of single women who fell pregnant, who we didn't want to look at or see, so we hide them away. If you were, for example, Tressa Reeves, who settled a case recently uh, last month, who was through St. Patrick's Guild, she will not be included in the mother and baby homes investigation because she was not through a mother and baby home, even though what happened to her and her child is exactly the same as what happened to women who were through Tume or Bespera or Castle Pollard or Sean Ross Abbey. It is the exact same issue. It is the exact same story. But we like to create inquiries with set lists of institutions. So we look at 14 and if you are outside those 14, you are not included. It doesn't matter whether it's the same issue or you had the same experience. It, so I wrote at the time of the MacAleese apology, I actually wrote Mother and Baby Homes will be next. We'll be looking at them. And lo and behold, here we are. And no doubt psychiatric institutions will have something will pop up in the media that will, will be the tune that will light the touch paper. And we will be looking back at psychiatric institutions, even though we all knew it's there. We all are screaming from the rooftop saying all of this needs to be examined as one whole. I mean, this is about women. It's not about institutions. That's my view on it. But it's easier to examine. It's easier to do this in Ireland when you can pick and choose and make things look like they're different and they're separate. And I, I completely agree. And I think that so the state compartmentalizes, but the yeah. private inquiry mechanism is a way to actually mm. get rid of the story. Yeah. Because the Mother and Baby Homes Commission was set up in, what, 2015, Connell, 2016? And ever since it was set up, there's been no public access to what it's investigating. So it actually operates to kind of kill the story in the public domain. And what, what, how do they defend that, Maeve? It's, it's under legislation. And this is why I say, like, Irish people need to understand, like, we are in charge of the laws of this country, you know, by virtue of the fact that we elect people to... Uh, pass laws in the Oireachtas. So the 2004 Commissions of Investigation Act was established as a way of kind of having inquiries that weren't tribunals, that didn't cost an arm and a leg. Everyone didn't have to be suited and booted with solicitors and barristers. So the Which idea was to have a private for, inquiry, for very sensitive but it went way too far. It's not necessary to have everything completely private in order to um, have people coming forward with information or to be allowed to compel information. Um, they figure out how to do it in other countries. Do you remember the Levison inquiry into yes. um, the behaviour of the media in England? I mean, that was public, but it wasn't, you know, years long. Um, and was it that sensitive, Maeve? Is that not an entirely, I mean, coming forward with, 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 with information about how you've been treated by the media, I mean, sure. that wasn't a particularly sensitive issue. OK, that's one example. I mean, the mm. ongoing historic child abuse inquiry in England is another example where um, groups of survivors are represented by one legal team, which um, doesn't get to cross-examine. But, but there are different, they're, not all of them have been chaotic since there are different modules and some of them are progressing very well. And when... Um, the information is compelled from, for example, the religious institutions, the legal team, the one legal team for um, a group uh, gets to see the documents and then they propose questions that the judge can push so that everybody isn't, you know, cross-examining for years. But but you are getting public access to the information and the transcripts um, are available when inquiries like this are done in other countries. The archives are produced in Australia, there is a huge archive uh, in relation to the forced adoptions there where it's possible to see your own information, where the um, kind of systematic archives are there. So we need to figure it out. It is not necessary 
to have this completely secret inquiry. And I think when you look at the cervical check issue, that, that is presenting the government with a quandary because the women, quite rightly, want justice to be done in public. That is how justice is supposed to be done. That is how we learn as a society. And now the government's probably thinking, how are we going to manage this? Because on the one hand, we could have a tribunal because that's how we do things in public. Or we've got this Commissions of Investigation Act, but we set up commissions of investigation to be private inquiries, that's not going to satisfy these women. So I'll be really interested to see, can we start to figure out a way of responding to victims of serious abuses by the state um, in a way that helps us all learn and that gives people what is their primary aim, which is that the truth will come out and that this won't happen again to other people. But there's an assumption, what I find really frustrating, even as a journalist on it, is there's an assumption that every woman who's through this wants privacy. And there's a conflation between privacy and secrecy. And to me, what screams through all of this is secrecy. I mean, you cannot get answers. I mean, I've went to the commission into mother and baby homes and asked them, you know, very straightforward, basic questions about how their confidential committee works. And the answer I got was, well, it's confidential. I mean, these were very, you know... Will people be given transcripts? You know, normal, ordinary, run-of-the-mill media inquiries. And that's the answer you get. And I just, I just think, you talk to people, bro, they can't believe that, that that would be deemed a sufficient answer. Um, and people say to me that it must be impossible to get answers out of the religious orders. It is, but I expect that. I expect a, a more transparent response from the state. Tusla is now the largest uh, holder of adoption records in the country. Before the furore over St. Patrick's Guild broke in May, um, which everyone seemed to think was news, even though, I mean, I was writing about these exact cases three and a half years ago. Yes. I was asking Tusla about Ill- illegal registrations and they just point blank told me we're not going to answer any more questions on this subject. So you have a state body just saying, we just, we're not answering anything. So you can't get anything under FOI. They won't answer any press queries. So you're stuck with kind of, what you know, where are we on this? So the state is just as secretive on this information as the religious orders ever was. You see, I think maybe one of the one of the difficulties from from Josephine Soap's point of view is that this really does seem like the appalling visitor. It seems like once you start, if you start a public inquiry into this, it will never end. How many people are involved? I suspect there is no family that is unaffected by this. So it just seems like something that could go on and on. Um, and not least, and I presume this is a factor, we're talking about redress, compensation. Mm. Is, that, is, that a, is that part of it? Is, is, there, is there no public outcry over Because there isn't a public outcry over this. Is there no public outcry because people just can't bear to think of the, the, the scale of it? I, I I don't think it's true that there's no public outcry. I think actually a lot of people want to see this done right. Um, I think we have got into the habit, which the state would like, of thinking first, oh, what's it going to cost us the money, the long drawn out investigation? Why don't we start by creating the archive? Why don't we start by creating a section of the National Archives into which all of the social service provision records go? I'm sure the people who are in direct provision now would like to see the records of the direct provision providers in 30 years time. I don't, you know, we have this system in Ireland that doesn't exist elsewhere where the state pays billions for social service provision that it then takes no responsibility for, that it doesn't ensure accountability for. I would like to see us create an archive, first deal with people's personal access to their own records, then make sure that the information is out there. You could, um, I think, save a lot of time and money by allowing academics and journalists and other people who want to um, investigate, you know, allowing them access to the archives. And then there are ways of ensuring individual access to redress and rehabilitation. Um, let's face it, the courts are extremely traumatic places to go to. So there is merit in looking at different systems. Um, But, you know, we just have to stop uh, thinking that we can continue with this secrecy forever. And actually dealing with it properly will help us in the future. It's tried and tested. And I think that's, I think there's probably uh, an institutional acknowledgement that this works in the sense of, we can delay things forever here. You know, I mean, it just takes so long. I mean, to even get to the point where there was a McAleese in- investigation into the laundries to tell us what everybody already knew. I mean, that the state was 
involved in the running of the or in the in the involvement in running the Magdalene Laundry. I mean, just for Magdalene had, had figured that out long before, had said it a million times. So I mean, you know, when and when McAleese was being set up, I mean, I wrote about um, cabinet material that I got, which showed that their cabinet ministers were at that stage before McAleese was even set up, and they were just having the discussion about setting up a committee to look at it. We're saying we have to be wary that there could be calls for address into other areas like mother and baby homes, psychiatric institutions. Lo and behold, five years later, where are we? We're looking at mother and baby homes. So they know this stuff is out there. They know that there's going to be calls for inquiries into it. But it's keep it tight, compartmentalize it, take the time to go through it. There'll be a report. We'll keep the archive closed. No one can ever question that. And then we'll wait for the next thing to roll along. And which they're was protecting true. the church financially as well. Absolutely. I mean, let's let's face it, these these women, girls, children made a lot of money for both the state and the church. So what people are asking for is simply um, compensation for what they actually provided um, and a form of rehabilitation, the means to live in a dry house, the means to potentially help a child go through education. Our society would be better off if we provided means to people who've been um, subjected to this trauma, which, by the way, doesn't go away. It actually can increase over time. I think we all can see that and it's uh, proven to be the case. If we could provide proper methods of rehabilitation and redress, I mean, our society would be better off for that. Connell, I'm intrigued to hear Maeve uh, say that it's about protecting the church um, because we do have a younger generation in government now. I mean... I can't imagine Leo Varadka wanting to protect the Catholic Church in his heart. So what is going on? I mean, I, I certainly we remember Michael Woods reaching that agreement with the religious orders and that sort of thing, which well, has never I, been fully paid up. I mean, I, I don't think you can look at the state and the church in isolation on these things when they clearly worked hand in hand. And I think that's the I mean, certainly in, in most of what I write in terms of adoption, I think the state is 100 percent protecting itself. I mean, you have multiple ministers who have stood up in the doll saying every adoption contracted in this state since 1952 has been done in line with the law. I mean, that's categorically untrue. Uh, I mean, and there is no way anyone could make such a claim without examining every single adoption record that's held. I mean, I have written for the best part of 10 years that if they want to look at the scale of illegal adoptions in this country, they need to audit the 150,000 odd adoption files that are there or open them to the people who are entitled to them because it's their information, or audit them and, and and do that process. And then we'll know whether there's a case to be answered. So can we just be very clear about this, Connell? Why won't they do that? Is that to do with the sensitivities of well, of biological parents or, no. or the way that they, they were treated in the first place or what? I, I, I think it's because if you look at adoption records, you're going to see... Uh, paper trails that don't add up, adoption orders which were contracted on the back of, in some cases, falsified consents um, or consents which don't stand up, um, multiple methods of illegal adoption, which is another point I'll come back to in the St. Patrick's Guild thing. Um, that's what they fear. The, 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 the appalling vista on adoption is the state has been allowing uh, or contracting adoptions which should not have been contracted. That is their fear. Um I was told repeatedly by the Department of Children and Youth Affairs that an audit of adoption records was a waste of time, that it would, quote, yield little useful information. What are we doing now? They're carrying out a scoping exercise because, lo and behold, someone had a look at the St. Patrick's Guild records and found, well, there actually is information on them that reveals that children were illegally registered. So all this time I was asking these questions and they kept telling me there's nothing to see here. Now they're doing it. And instead of carrying out a full audit, they're doing a scoping exercise of what would be presumably a minuscule amount of records so we can delay it even further. Till you, you don't know how many is involved with the scoping they won't exercise. I, I had a story in it recently. I asked the question, what's the sample size? They wouldn't tell me. It'll be revealed in the final report in October. Now, I mean, so reading between the lines, I imagine it's going to be small if they're unwilling to tell us how large the sample size is or what they're looking for. And the other thing is they seem to be only focusing on illegal registrations where uh, a couple was given a child and told, you know, take this child now and register it as if it was born to yourself. In that scenario, no adoption order took place. So the state's off the hook because there's no adoption order. So they'll say, well, we did, this was a private arrangement. But there are numerous examples of adoption orders that did take place 
which the state is on the hook for, but no one seems to be talking about them. And when you ask about those questions, are you looking for other forms of illegal adoption outside of illegal birth registrations? You get kind of a wishy-washy answer and, you, you know, we'll see, we can't answer anything on the scoping exercise now. So I think there is an absolutely, they're 100% aware that this issue is across multiple agencies. They're very fearful of how big it is and how large it will become. I mean, they've already admitted privately in, in records I obtained that a full audit of adoption records would be onerous and would require massive resources, which we all know it would. doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. I agree um, with Connell about the definition of illegal adoption. So Lindsay Erner Byrne, an excellent academic in UCD who has written about um, mothers and children in Irish history, uh, found that in 1967, 97% of children born outside marriage were adopted. Now tell me that all of those are regular. Freely informed as well. Yeah. 97% of children born outside marriage in 1967 were adopted. And in, have, in, I have think we, in Australia, where there's been a state apology for forced and illegal adoption, I think the highest I think the highest rate that it reached there was in the mid 60 something percentile. So I mean, we're you know we're we're approaching 100 percent in a year here, and it's we haven't even re- God, remotely looked at it. Have we any idea how many people are involved in this? How many adoptions we're actually talking about? Has anybody... But that's another question. I mean, it, it, you've had to guess on that for so long yes. because nobody knows the scale of illegal birth registrations. Um, I mean, I wrote in 2015 that the Adoption Authority had admitted that there was possibly thousands of people out there in this position. They told... I mean, when I wrote about Tressa Reeves in 2011, the Adoption Authority themselves carried out an audit where they found uh, 99 cases of illegal registrations. They then, in subsequent years, found another 120. These were reported to the Department of Children and Youth Affairs on three separate occasions since then. And yet the minister stands up last May and reveals all of this about St. Patrick's guilt like it just was a bolt from the blue. Her department had been told on multiple occasions that this was out there, that this was... And that's just illegal registration. So they're informal in in a sense because they were never regularised adoptions. But if you start to look at all the records and see cases where the consents don't add up or the paper trails don't add up, God knows how big it is. I mean, the first time I ever heard that there was 150,000 adoption records held by various agencies was when Minister Sabone said it in May. You couldn't get an answer on that. In terms of numbers, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission is investigating 18 institutions. That's 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes. But the Adoption Rights Alliance and Justice for Magdalene's research groups have submitted a list of 182 institutions, individuals or agencies to the Commission of Investigation saying that as far as it can tell, at least 182 were involved in the treatment of unmarried mothers and their children. And interestingly, St. Patrick's Guild was excluded from the terms of reference of the current commission um, because I wrote about it at the time because I had said, despite the department being told about these guys, they have decided not to include them in the inquiry that's actually looking at this area. And lo and behold, now, these 126 cases that the minister referenced in in May, they're now being referred to the commission. So they could have done this, you know, three years ago, but you know, this is, seems to be how, you know, round and round we go on the merry It's all happening in secret and depends on advocates like Maeve and journalists like yourself, college, to just pursue the facts of what's going on in secret. Right now. Well, yeah, I suppose. It, because nobody's coming out and telling you what's happening. No, it's very, it's very difficult to get answers to anything. Um, you know, you kind of piece it together as you go along. I mean, I, I started on this eight or nine years ago and I just couldn't believe that this was like not huge. That no one was saying this is like the biggest church date scandal we've got. Um, just by just sheer dint of numbers out there that this could be absolutely See, enormous. This and, is, this, and this they've is admitted this privately. Yes. I, I mean... When when Tume, I I mean, I got material when the whole Tume thing broke. I mean, they were told about Tume, the department was told about Tume in 2012, two years before Catherine Corliss, um, you know, revealed the 796 in Tume. They had found records related to Tume and they were so concerned about them within the HSE that they had said, we need to notify the minister so a full and forensic state inquiry can be launched. In fact, senior management in the HSE actually used the words that this could be the biggest state sca- church state scandal we've seen. Nothing happened. Nothing and was done about where it. Where do we stand right now on the, on, on, on the Chewham story, Maeve? What, what is happening right now? Well, as far as it seems, that the latest step has been that Galway County Council or City, City Council? County Council. The County Council was given the task of asking people 
to submit their choice of option for what should happen to those babies' bodies from one to five. Uh, one being we could do nothing, just cover it over, place a memorial. Five being a full excavation and identification to the absolute extent possible of the identities of the babies who are buried there. Now, people were essentially asked to vote on that as if no law applies to this whole area. What happened here, in my view, from a human rights perspective, is enforced disappearance, where people are detained, then disappear, and no information is given about what has happened to them, their fate, their whereabouts, um, when they die in detention and families aren't told where they've been buried. That is one of the most serious international crimes and human rights violations there is. And yet the people of Galway were asked to vote on what should happen to those babies' bodies. And again, what struck me about that was that it seemed to just be accepted as normal. I mean, if, if that was anywhere else in the world, I don't even understand why there's even a need to make it. I mean, the decision should be clear and obvious to everyone. I mean, this was an internationally huge story. It sounds, like, it sounds like there's a sense of helplessness at official level, that they feel it's just too big. Well, I, I think ultimately I would be astonished if they don't go for the fifth option being the, the fullest possible exhumation. I mean... I just can't see how they can spin it to say any other option is is suitable. And I think, well, I think the fear is that where does it go from there? Yes. I mean, and I think there's been a very deliberate construction of a narrative here to make the whole story about Tum and the whole story about infant deaths. When in fact, as we've said, this goes far beyond Tum. Tum was one part of a system. Um, You know, you're talking about Obviously, infant deaths, which was horrendous, but you're also talking about adoptions. You're talking about vaccine trials. You're talking about the trafficking of women of children, um, including out of the country, um, which I, I still think we have never gotten to the bottom of fully. Um, I mean, and then you've the. I mean, I wrote a couple of months ago about people think this was in the past. I mean, there's unmarked plots in Cork that I wrote about which children from Bespera are buried in as late as 1990. So I mean, this didn't stop. I mean. But yet most of those children, are bur- they're buried in uh, plots owned by, well, one is a pauper's grave and the other two are owned by uh, ostensibly the former St. Anne's Adoption Society. So none of those children, apart from the children that are related to Bespera, none of their burials are going to be investigated because they're not included in the terms of reference because adoption societies aren't included. Maeve, just in terms of your specialist subject, really, as, as a, in a voluntary capacity, amazingly, even though you're so closely associated with the Magdalene Laundries, where do we stand with that right now? Um, so in terms of, I've talked about the information and the lack of access to the archives. Uh, in terms of the redress scheme that was announced in 2013, there is still major uh, problems with its implementation. Um, uh, the Ombudsman investigated the Department of Justice's maladministration of that scheme um, and produced a report last year uh, saying that it was wrong of the department to exclude from the scheme girls who had worked in Magdalene Laundries, who the department accepted had worked in Magdalene Laundries, but who the nuns had on the registers of adjacent children's educational schools. And the department said, you can't be in the scheme because the scheme's for people who were both admitted to and worked in the Magdalene Laundries. And although we admit you work there, you weren't admitted. Now, those women still haven't been allowed into the scheme. Um, There was a hugely positive event in June, the Dublin Honours Magdalene's event. It was amazing. It was amazing to see particularly the outpouring of support from ordinary Irish people for the women. And that is why I say I think the state's doing the ordinary Irish people a disservice in relation to all of this. I really think we want the truth to come out and we want to make it better in to the extent that is even possible. Um, that event was excellent and the Minister for Justice promised that the scheme would be fixed, that those women would be allowed in um, and that other aspects of the scheme would be made right. So the health care that the women were promised in 2013 has not materialised properly. They were promised the equivalent standard of healthcare card that people who were infected by the state with hepatitis C in the 1990s got, which is the HAA card. It really gives access to a lot of private um, services. 
notably, you know, psycho, um, psychotherapy, counselling for as long as you need, whenever you need from any private practitioner and other very important health services and home care and things that women who are in Magdalene laundries desperately need. But they actually just got the ordinary medical card with a couple of add-ons. how many women are we talking about at this stage that, that are acknowledged at least at this stage? How many women are we talking about? Um, Do you think? Well, around about 800 women, I understand, applied to the scheme. Um, and we have been asking the department to continue to advertise it, particularly abroad, um, because we still think that there may be women who still haven't heard of it. Um, and they have given uh, payments under the scheme to over 600 women. Right. Now, Carl, there is, uh, we'll go back to the appalling vista again and people's fears that their state is going to be bankrupted by all these people coming forward and looking for compensation in one form or another. But it isn't possible for people to sue the state or religious orders because of the statute of limitations. Yeah, uh, and I mean, it's often thrown at people well, you know. like I know it was mentioned in the, the latest response to the UN that no one has taken a criminal case. But I mean, it's so difficult to do it to, to begin with. And if you've, if you've, if you've been, if, obviously, if you've been received redress previously, you, you waive all those rights, um, which is, again, like Maeve said, you're essentially paying people for their silence. Um, I mean, there's been a few cases in recent times of of people t- like Tressa Reeves took the state on and they settled. I mean, I, I think, but to expect ordinary people who have no, in, in the case of doctors... Has that created a precedent, by the way, Conway? I certainly hope so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it, it, costs, it costs people a lot of money. People are afraid they're going to lose money um, because these are ordinary working people. Um so everything is constructed against them in, 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 in a way, because, I mean, they have to take on the might of the state. They have to go to the high court. That costs a lot of money. So and furthermore, if you're adopted and you're 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 how are you going to beat the statute when what in a, in a recent case, if you, was it last year, a judge had told a woman who was through a laundry and trying to take on a case for the illegal adoption of her son. Um, well, that with, you know he couldn't overturn the statute because essentially she should have accessed or been able to access these records before now. I mean, the woman grew up in industrial schools. She had no education and she has actually got no legal right to the records anyway because we haven't introduced any information to allow adopted people or or natural mothers their their records. I think the question of access to the courts is so important because you mentioned, Cathy, the helplessness even around June that people feel and I'm saying there are huge human rights violations here. So why can't people just go to court? In relation to the criminal law, there isn't any statute of limitations. Uh, In other words, the DPP can prosecute for as long as they want serious crimes. However, in relation to the Magdalene laundries, the Department of Justice keeps telling the UN that there's no credible evidence that crimes occurred systematically in the Magdalene laundries. Like That is educating the Gardaí, no doubt, to respond in a particular way if people complain. In relation to civil cases... The statute of limitations is absolute. So if someone pleads it in defence, then um, there is no way for the judge to say, unlike in England, well, actually, it's in the interest of justice Just, yeah. here to allow this case go forward. Mm. Um, and the costs that the state asks for uh, is such a huge barrier to people. Um, so in Ireland, again, unlike America, I think people sometimes don't understand what it's really like to try and sue the state. So in Ireland, if you sue the state or anybody for that matter, the nuns, if you lose your case, you usually have to pay their costs. Now, anybody who managed to get out of an institution um, and build a life, they may have a house that's an asset. And the first thing they're told by solicitors is, you probably don't want to do this because if you lose your case, and bearing in mind there haven't been many successful cases in Ireland, then and so there's a big chance of losing it. Then you could lose your house, and, and, I've come and this happened. Well, yeah, and so have I. And uh, the state does pursue people. For example, Louise O'Keefe yeah. sued the Irish state. Um, it took her, I think, 14 years to ultimately get to the European Court of Human Rights, where she was vindicated where the European Court of Human Rights said Ireland had failed to have structures to protect her from sexual abuse by her national school principal in the 1970s. But when she was on her way and when she lost at the High Court, the High Court awarded €500,000 costs to be paid by Louise O'Keefe to the state. And she had to just hope against hope that they wouldn't pursue her for that. She had two small children. And can you imagine what that's like for someone who's already suffered 
the kind of abuse that people have. And access is key as well. I mean, if, if people want to take a case, I mean, trying to even access basic information about their lives, people who are adopted, it's, it's virtually impossible. Okay. I mean, we have no information in tracing legislation. What's going through there has been heavily criticised. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get numerous phone calls every week from people asking me to help them find their sons, their daughters. Can I help them access their records? Can I help them explain their records? I mean, I'm a journalist. This isn't my, you know, that's the state should be doing this for people. It's obliged to do for people. I'm going to ask you one last question. um, And it seems almost light uh, compared to what's what's what we've been discussing. People have been saying the Pope should get off the podium and the Pope mobile and go around and apologise personally to people. It's is that enough? I mean, they've already apologised numerous times. Is there any point to that request? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose to me, it's, it's what it does for survivors. And what I've read recently, you know, from Colm O'Gorman and others, they seemed to say, you know, an apology is meaningless. I mean, without accountability and without making the Vatican and the church independently accountable to somebody, um, you know, words are easy. You know, I mean, we learned from the Magdalene Laundry's apology just how easily sorry can be said without meaningful redress and meaningful justice. And Maeve, one last question to you. Um, there's currently a campaign to save the Sean McDermott Street Magdalene Laundry site. Uh, and that you, I suspect, believe should be some kind of commemorative site of what has happened there and maybe to represent all of that's happened in this country and indeed what still lies beneath. What is going on there? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Dublin City Council officials currently plan to sell that two-acre site for €14 million to a Japanese hotel chain. Um, It is the Magdalene Laundry that was the last to close in 1996. It is uniquely in the possession of the state because the nuns gave it to Dublin City Council in exchange for other land, I believe, in 1996. So we are... uh, campaigning. Uh, There are a lot of different people campaigning to try and make sure that the Dublin City Councillors block that sale. Um, And there is a real need for a place of commemoration and national education about all of the historic, not, I shouldn't even say historic, all of the institutional and church-related abuses. And the Stand for Truth gathering that's happening at the Garden of Remembrance this Sunday at 3pm will culminate in a silent march down to the Sean McDermott Street Magdalene site in an effort to bring attention That's where to the need. That's going to wind up. Exactly. That's what, like, I think it's important that we own our history, right? And what Maeve is talking about is, is exactly that. I mean, we were so quick to have multiple commemorations commemorating the heroes of 1916, all Irish men. We're very quick to honour what Irish men did supposedly did for freedom and the cause of this we country. We a few women in there as well. A few, remember, but yeah. it, you know, this is a whole section of Irish social history and of women who went to their graves silently and unmarked doing things for the cause of feminism and justice for women and who have never been honoured and never been recognised, in my view, anyway, as a man. <laughs> as a man. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in, Conal O'Farrita and Maeve O'Rourke. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That was Maeve O'Rourke of the ICCL and Irish Examiner journalist Conal O'Farrita speaking to me there. Now, recently, the Irish Times published a number of letters to the Pope from people including Colm O'Gorman, Katie Askell and Fintan O'Toole. Also among them was one from Ashling, the main character in the book Oh My God, What a Complete Ashling, and the soon-to-be-published second book in the series The Importance of Being Ashling by Emer McLeisacht and Sarah Breen. Here's Emer reading Ashling's letter to Francis. Dear Pope Francis, Firstly, I'd like to take this opportunity to explain the row I had with my best friend Magella over confirmation names in sixth class. We both wanted Emma, you see, and we were fit to kill each other over it. It was all for nothing, though, because Miss Maloney insisted there's no Saint Emma, so I took the classic Bridget to keep the peace, and Madge went for the slightly more obscure Lidwina, the patron saint of ice skaters. We were friends again by the time the confirmation mass came around, but I have to admit here and now that I thought it would never end. Magella got a terrible mass laugh, and there's 
nothing more contagious than a mass laugh. In the end, both of us were sitting there, staring straight ahead, shaking silently with tears streaming down our faces. I had to dig my nails into my palm and think about poor Granny Riley's coffin being lowered into the grave to try and get back to a state of equilibrium. The bishop knew well what was happening too. I'm surprised he let the Holy Spirit near us. I hope you can forgive us. We were only 12 and up to high dough with all the carry on. While I'm confessing things, I may as well tell you I've stopped going to Mass. Mammy has too, even though the call for steady-footed Eucharistic ministers for your big do in the Phoenix Park nearly had her back practising the body of Christ's. Between yourself and myself, the good has gone out of Mass. Too much has gone on and too many people have been hurt. I'll go for a wedding, of course. I'd rather throw myself into the fiery pit of hell than ruin a bride's special day. But apart from that and the odd funeral, I just can't bring myself to see eye to eye with the Catholic Church anymore. You seem like a decent enough skin, so would you not be better off meeting with victims or visiting a mother and baby home than shutting down half of Dublin? Although you should try and do the Skyline Tour in Croke Park. The views are mighty. Would you be able for all the steps in your dress? I suppose most of all I'm disappointed in the church. I was raised a Catholic and I do believe in heaven. Well, I have to believe my lovely daddy is in some sort of heaven or I lose my reason altogether. But I am disappointed. Some of the things your crowd have said over the past few years about gay people getting married and people having abortions is nothing short of shite hawkery. Mammy will probably kill me for saying shite hawkery to the Pope, but it was actually her who said it first. She's more disappointed than me. Her auntie had a baby taken off her years ago and the news has been hard to watch this past while. She thinks you have a lot to ask forgiveness for and I think she's right. So I suppose until you ask for it properly, then I can't really get on board with you coming to see us. But as you're coming anyway, you might have a word with any loose cannon bishops who might have notions about contraception. Hopefully you can forgive me though for laughing during the confirmation mass and for saying shite hawkery and for using the few prayers I do still say to hope for a county final win. Yours sincerely, Ashling. That was author Emer McIsaac there and the importance of being Ashling by Emer and her co-author Sarah Breen is out in September. Well, that wasn't exactly a barrel of laughs as conversations go, but there again, there is nothing funny about any of this. And in many ways, it's easier to turn away and not think about it. So I hope you made it this far in the podcast because these are extremely important issues and they are not going to go away regardless of what some may want to happen. I should remind you about the Stand for Truth event on Sunday, August 26th at 3 p.m., in the Garden of Remembrance and winding all the way up to Sean McDermott Street, as Maeve has pointed out. That's all we have time for. Thanks to my guests Maeve O'Rourke and Conlo Farta. The podcast is produced by Roshan Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. This is the Irish Times Women's Podcast. We're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast and you can find us wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. And remember, you can always find us and all the other excellent Irish Times audio offerings on irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.